for WPFW in Washington and WBAI New York. I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. Thanks for listening. in Washington and all points beyond. This is Oscar Fernandez, and you're listening to Latino Media Collective here on WPFW 89.3 FM, Washington. El Distrito Colombia here on this Friday, March 1st, 2024. We're also heard on latinomediacollective.com. You can find us on Twitter under the name at LMC underscore show. That is at LMC underscore show. And of course, live on WPFWFM.org. That's WPFWFM.org. Once again, this is Oscar Fernandez, and today on the show, we put the spotlight on Chile to discuss the future of the country's constitution following a rejection of a right-wing draft and what it means for the country's next presidential election in 2025. Last December, the Chilean public rejected a second attempt to rewrite the current constitution that was written during the U.S. support dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet. This attempt followed a first attempt at changing the constitution by leftist lawmakers in 2022 following a series of anti-austerity demonstrations in 2019. But while a right-wing attempt at a draft was recently rejected, our guest today will explain why this latest attempt is not necessarily a cause for celebration. And so with us on the show today is Nikki Duda. She is a Chicago-based writer, editor, and researcher her last article in NACLA is entitled, Chile Rejects Far-Right Constitution. Chileans voted no on a constitutional referendum. The Pinochet-era constitution endures while the path to reform remains uncertain. So, Nikki Duda, welcome back to the show. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. So, as I said before in the beginning, last December you wrote an article in NACLA explaining how, although the left succeeded in rejecting a right-wing revision of the constitution, it is not necessarily a cause for celebration. In fact, both the left and the right, based on what I read, in Chile seem to find some degree of victory in the final decision. So now that we're into March, we could look back post-mortem on the last constitutional referendum. 
Can you explain how both the Chilean left and the right claim some degree of victory in its rejection? I know you crystallized this a lot better than I did, so please go ahead. So the whole constitutional process began after the estallido social protests that began in autumn of 2019 over an increase in subway fares. And they very quickly turned into anti-government demonstrations where protesters were demanding major systemic changes. And one of the major victories to come out of it, or that was seen at the time as a victory, was this vote on whether or not to replace the 1980 constitution, which was put in place during the dictatorship. In 1980, Pinochet passed a new neoliberal constitution. It was the brainchild of Chilean economists educated in the United States. They aimed to keep state intervention to a minimum, leaving the market to sort the rest. The economic boom benefited a tiny elite. Since the transition to democracy, there have been minor reforms, but the core of the Pinochet constitution has remained largely unchanged. So just to be clear, that is still in effect now that this last draft was rejected in December. So on the left, there was hope of replacing this Pinochet-era document with a more progressive constitution, and that's what that first draft was. It would have expanded rights for women, for indigenous peoples, for the environment, but it was targeted by an extensive and expensive right-wing disinformation campaign. They were telling people the government would be able to take their homes, that they would allow indigenous nations to separate from Chile and break up the country. And it was rejected at the polls in September 2022. So the draft that voters rejected in December was written by the right wing, largely by the far right Republicano Party. And so even though the left had hoped to replace this dictatorship era charter, it was still seen as something of a victory that even though it wasn't getting replaced, at least they were getting something worse, right? But at the same time, this also meant that the right wing could claim this as a victory because here we have this constitution that was imposed in 1980 outside of democracy. And now they're able to say, we've had two democratic votes on this. What do you mean people want this constitution? Look, they rejected two others. And so that's that's not ideal. And originally, the Republicano Party... They were the majority on the Constitutional Council and they had veto power. Many of them ideologically are in line with Pinochet with those kind of dictatorship era politics as odd as it seems. And they didn't want a new constitution in the first place. So for them, it's kind of like, great, we maybe didn't get exactly what we wanted, but they're still able to frame it as a win. But at the same time, the left does have another small victory in there in that had this draft been approved, it likely would have kind of paved a decent path to the presidency for the leader of that far-right party, Jose Antonio Cast, who openly, you know, he campaigned for Pinochet during the plebiscite that led to his ouster. He didn't want to return to democracy. Those are his politics. And so that vote likely deprived him of some significant momentum and polls are kind of bearing that out at this point. He's kind of dropped into second place. Well, with that said, speaking of polling, another reason why there shouldn't be a lot of cause for celebration, especially from the Chilean left, and you mentioned this in your article as well, is that while analysis had expected the proposal to fail, though on the eve of the vote, polls showed that margin was narrowing. So to a certain degree, maybe disinformation did work, not in the way that many people would have thought or expected it to. So let's expand a little bit more, if you can, about the issue of disinformation, because again, while it didn't succeed, it's still something that's going to have to be addressed, especially when there's a presidential election coming up in 2025. So obviously the focus here in this conversation may be on what went wrong with these two attempts at rewriting the Constitution whether or not this will come back again in the future. Unfortunately, the issue of disinformation and fake news, especially like that that you mentioned in your article, is something that's going to stick around for a long time coming, correct? Yes. And so the examples of disinformation that I gave a few minutes ago were from the campaign that led up to the vote in September 2022. So this was on the progressive kind of version of the Constitution that was also rejected. And I believe by a larger margin, although I'm not 100% sure about the numbers right now. So yeah, disinformation 
obviously is much larger of an issue when you have kind of a, a wealth imbalance in these kind of situations. So you have, you know, a wealthy entrenched right in Chile that has people who have had ties to the dictatorship for years and years and years. And I mean, some of that we'll talk about later too, right? And are the elite of this country. And they, given the kind of media climate that we live in now, just like in the United States, just like in Russia, just like in many other countries around the world, it becomes this kind of, even if the right doesn't have the people power, I guess we can say the votes, the popular support, which is not always the case, of course, but even in the cases where they don't, it's easy to kind of leverage your wealth and turn it into something that can change electoral outcomes. And, you know, a lot of people, and I think this also speaks to kind of the racial politics of Chile, but a lot of people were very swayed by one, the belief that the government would be able to take their property, that private property would no longer exist, which was nowhere in that draft. Totally false. I mean, some of these campaigns were saying things like they would have more rights than other Chileans. They would be put on a they would be put on a pedestal in some kind of way that would undercut the rights of mestizo Chileans. And, you know, in a country where people identify pretty heavily with being, quote unquote, whiter than the rest of Latin America, that was a persuasive argument, I think. It's quite disturbing to read your article in regards to the issue of disinformation because we're already into March. And since the beginning of the year, this show has done shows on Guatemala, El Salvador, and to a certain degree, Ecuador, and underlying all the constitutional and democratic problems that those respected countries have had has been the issue of disinformation pushing this anti-democratic agenda in various places, not just Chile, but certainly they're not alone with regards to the issue of disinformation and how it's used in one form or another in one country to the next. So looking back at the first attempt in 2022 to change the constitution, Many people applauded not only the content of the first draft, but also about the inclusionary nature of the drafting process. This included women and the Mapuche people as well during the course of this drafting process in 2022. Almost one year later, the Chilean political elite took the lead in the second attempt. So how did the Chilean right end up dictating the language in the second constitutional referendum? You mentioned that they have veto power in the uh, Chilean assembly. And so while you and I may have an understanding about this, it's probably worth noting that even though Gabriel Boric came in as a leftist president, that didn't necessarily mean that his party or people like-minded like him had controlled the assembly when they came in automatically, correct? This was actually for a constitutional council that was going to be writing the draft. And so, as you said, the first group of delegates, the first council was diverse, inclusive. The first leader was a Mapuche indigenous woman, the first leader of the council for that first draft. And, you know, a lot of people felt that it was too radical. It was too left. It was too inclusive. It was too all of those things. And so this vote rolled around in May of last year to bring in a new council to work on this new draft, the right wing, you know, kind of swept the election in a way. They won the majority on that council and they had enough of a majority with the far right Republicanos party and the rest of the right wing to give them veto power. And so in the first council, I believe representation for indigenous people, it had to be proportionate to what they represent in the actual population of Chile. And so in the second one, it was just sheer number of votes. And so there ended up being one indigenous representative in the whole council, which, you know, I believe the indigenous people, which include the Mapuche in Chile, are something like 13%, 12% or something of the overall population. So definitely more than there should have been more than one representative. And this party that we're talking about, this right wing, this far right party, the Republicanos, are led by Jose Antonio Cast, who almost defeated the current president in 2021. Right. His brother, Miguel, was one of the Chicago boys who imposed neoliberalism in Chile during the dictatorship. That's right. His father was a former Nazi party member in Germany who fled to Chile during denazification 
Yeah. Uh, and he died while he was still under investigation for the 1973 murders of dozens of peasants. And so these are the people who were directing this draft. Had this draft succeeded, Costas probably, he would probably be further ahead in the polls right now for the November 2025 election. And just to give people an idea of what this draft looked like under the guise of the right wing, you know, by people like Cass, you mentioned in, in your article that the proposal would have restricted abortion access, further enshrined neoliberal economics, which we'll get to in more detail in a second, and laid the groundwork for dozens of people in prison for dictatorship era crimes to be released on house arrest. More on that in a second as well. So it seems like more of the same or in another way to look at it, it's almost like a distinction without a difference, for lack of a better term. Yeah. It seems like what they were proposing is simply another way of rephrasing what already exists under the Pinochet era constitution, which, as you mentioned, you know, was done under an undemocratic period. And since you mentioned this undemocratic period, I want to take this opportunity, if you can mention one curious character in your article in NACLA, and that is a former Pinochet advisor, Jaime Guzman, because I think this sort of shows your argument that this was done during undemocratic times. I mean, literally days into this undemocratic period, correct? Pretty quickly after the coup in 1973, the Constitution didn't come about until 1980. But as you're saying, Jaime Guzman was tasked with starting to lay the groundwork for what it would look like to change the Constitution like quickly after the coup happened. And so as you're saying that, that constitution is not very different from the one that Chile just voted on a few months ago at this point. It enshrined the neoliberal economic model and it oddly didn't even recognize the existence of indigenous peoples. I mean, not oddly, I guess, if you look at their politics, but that was also an issue in this latest draft and that there were no enshrined rights. There was just, they exist. At least they exist this time. So as recently as last January, in addition to the rejection of this constitutional referendum attempt, Chile's assembly voted to legislate a pension bill. The few on the left argue that it leaves out key changes and doesn't address the root issues with regards to, you know, the country's pension system. So, for example, a 6% increase in monthly pension contributions paid for by employers half of which would go into a solidarity fund for the poorest pensioners had been removed from this legislation in January. So pension reform was one of the key demands during the uh, protests in 2019. Again, since we're having this discussion in postmortem, we have two attempts at changing the constitution falling short. How has this affected the presidency of Gabriel Boric as it stands right now? So as we were saying earlier, he came to power largely on the back of that movement, right? And so the failure of not just the progressive draft, but of the entire process is a major failure for his administration because that was being sold as the victory for the protest movement and kind of like the one concession being made, which was a big one, to be fair. But so at the start of his term, when he proposed this pension reform, it seemed like maybe... This was going to be another potential victory for that movement. And I think part of what kind of has pushed people, pushed lawmakers to kind of turn against it is the rise of the right, the rise of the far right, the growing popularity of the far right, especially in May when they won a majority on the Constitutional Council through, you know, when this vote happened, it was kind of looking like, that was the direction that the country was going down again. And now, even though that's a bit up in the air, it definitely, people are consolidating around that. And especially with the death of Sebastián Piñera earlier last month in a helicopter crash. You know, popular in some circles, obviously not with people who were active in this movement nor had anything to do with this popular-ish conservative president, potentially another kind of rallying point for this nostalgia to bring that kind of politics back into the mainstream in a more meaningful way than maybe it has been since the return to democracy. That definitely has contributed to the gutting of this pension reform. But on the other hand, I think the current government has not had much of a strategy to kind of keep up 
with these promises that it made before it came to power. They're kind of like being in the spirit of that movement. It kind of separated itself from that. And we saw that recently with the government making an agreement with the mining firm SQM to extract lithium in Chile. And this is, you know, problematic, obviously, from an environmental standpoint, because it's an extractive industry and climate change. And we all know all that. But politically, it's also pretty dicey because that firm, as I'm sure you know, is known for its ties to the dictatorship. Its principal shareholder is Pinochet's former son-in-law. Oh, really? Uh, And that kind of, yes. And that brings up questions around electoral politics in general that we obviously don't have time to get into here. But does that have to do with the growing power of the right? Does the president feel like he has to kind of cozy up to those kinds of forces? Or is this what happens to quote unquote left-wing presidents, left-wing political officials in general? Is this their ultimate fate? I don't know. So this past February, Jackman had an incredible article with regards to the pension system in Chile. And one of the things that they point out is that this current system was implemented in 1981, almost around the same time as the current constitution that's been in question Mm. for some time now in Chile. And it went from a pay-as-you-go public pension system and replaced with a privatized one. And this was the type of system that as recently as 2003, George W. Bush, you know, wanted to model the U.S. system after the Chilean system. Consider that, you know, food for thought. And in addition to that, the Jacobin article also mentioned that in 2016, three of Chile's six largest private pension funds were run by foreign companies. And we're not talking about a few million or tens of millions. We're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars alone. And I bring this up to you because the only way that these foreign companies can make money off of pension funds is for that money to leave the country altogether. And so it's a fine example, in my opinion, of how the free movement of capital can undermine democracy. And all of this is happening under the legality of the current constitution. So I'll tell you the same thing I told you, I think last time when we spoke on the show, was that sometimes the scandal isn't that the government broke the law, but rather that they didn't have to, meaning that the inherent injustice and inequality in the constitution is not the bug, but rather the feature. And the Chilean people, in my opinion, recognized that in 2019. And so this is part of the problematic issue with not only the constitution itself, but what's going to happen with the Boric administration in the coming months ahead prior to 2025 with the next presidential election. So you mentioned the environment, and I want to ask you right now something that wasn't in your NACLA article. Because as we have this conversation right now, one of the big headlines in Chile as we speak is a series of wildfires where at least 124 people have already died. And to your recollection, to what degree of importance was protecting the environment in the leftist attempt at rewriting the Constitution? I know that the Mapuches for several years have been making arguments about the long-term effects of climate change And even how the mining industry, which you just mentioned, you know, sort of does long-term damage to the environment in Chile. So considering these series of wildfires are happening right now in Chile, and keep in mind here in the U.S., you know, the headlines are wildfires in Texas, which have killed a significant number of people as well. To your recollection, you know, what degree of importance was the environment held in the first referendum attempt? So... That draft constitution would have given the environment rights, basically. So had that been approved, there would have been, in theory and potentially in practice also, actual restrictions on mining activities, restrictions on extractive industries. And I believe it would have put them, I'm not 100% sure, but I believe it would have been a kind of, it would have been, those industries would have been nationalized. They would have been in the hands of the state. And there was this language about the natural world, about water and the environment in general as common natural goods, as like a shared kind of shared resource, but also a shared thing that people have rights to, that the state or private industries can't just ruin and take away. So that would have been, I mean, 
in terms of protections for the environment, it was very groundbreaking in many ways. It would have been had it been approved. And yeah, so I don't think the failure of that draft is much of an accident. I don't think it's, you know, surprising that the right would wage such a significant disinformation campaign against that draft constitution. And to my recollection, from what I saw in this first attempt in 2022, there would have been greater regulations to the safeguards with regards to things such as mining, because you have to remind people that lithium along with coltan, it's not something that you could pick up with your bare hands and then start processing it. Mm. It's very dangerous, very toxic, and could lead to long-term damage to human beings if you know, exposed in river waters and things of that nature. So we're going to take a break right here. We're speaking with Nikki Duda, who's a Chicago-based writer, editor, and researcher. Her recent article in NACLA is entitled Chile Rejects Far-Right Constitution. This is the Latino Media Collective here on WPFW 89.3 FM, Washington. We're going to take a quick break right here. Back with more in a minute. Stay tuned.
That was Anna Tijou, and you're listening to Latino Media Collective here on WPFW 89.3 FM, Washington. Reminding everyone that you can follow us on latinomediacollective.com. You can also follow us on Twitter under the name at LMC underscore show. That is at LMC underscore show. And of course, live on WPFWFM.org. That's WPFWFM.org. Once again, this is Oscar Fernandez, and we're speaking about the future of Chile's constitution with Nikki Duda, who's a Chicago-based writer, editor, and researcher. And so, Nikki, before we continue, I just want to tell everyone that we're going to create a link to your NACLA article on our Twitter account so people can learn more and get more details about what's next for Chile's constitution, even with regards to the presidential elections in 2025 as well. But before we do that, the last time we had you on the show was in early November, and we spoke about... Chile's response to Palestine. And I have to say, looking back on that episode in hindsight, one of the frustrating things about the uh, Boric administration is that while his government was on the right side in condemning Israel's actions in Gaza, when it comes to the economics, that's where he seems to be falling short. And we could expand on that a little bit more if you like. But as soon as we had our little conversation last time, both Henry Kissinger, former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, and Joan Hara, the widow of the late great Chilean artist and folk singer Victor Hara, both passed away in the same month, in November. So what's even stranger is that even in death, their stories still managed to intertwine following the arrest and extradition of Chilean national Pedro Barrientos, who is accused of murdering Chilean folk singer Victor Hara. So let me put, you know, Joan Hara's story to the side for a moment. And I want to see if you can give me, first of all, your, your opinion on Henry Kissinger following his passing. And do both of these stories serve as examples of how the shadow of the Pinochet years still haunt Chile even today? I mean, I had the pleasure of speaking with investigative reporter John Dinges back in December about this. And he was profoundly sickened by all the romanticized obituaries of Henry Kissinger in the U.S. press. Yes. So, I mean, (laughs) 2023, what a weird year for Chile, because it was also, I mean, as we all know, was the 50th anniversary of the coup that brought Pinochet to power. So you have this happening. You have the vote on what we now know was the final vote probably for a while on a new constitution. And then you have these two major figures in Chilean history passing away. And, you know, Henry Kissinger, the mainstream media was practically canonizing him as a saint when he died, you know, the elder statesman. I mean, he has a long, long resume of potential war crimes, basically. But what we know about his history in Chile and what he did in Chile was that as the U.S. has declassified more documents since the 1970s, it's become clear that he was Washington's chief architect of the efforts to destabilize the country and then prime it for a coup after Allende was elected in 1970. So they immediately started doing that. And then the coup happened, you know, almost three years later and kind of, you know, supporting these oppositional elements within the military And he died in total impunity, not just for what he did in Chile, but for what he did in Vietnam, what he did all over the world, what he did in the United States. And he was, you know, lived to the ripe age of 100. And then you have Victor Jara's widow, Joan Jara, who is the kind of opposite figure, someone who has kind of dedicated her life, not just to, you know, getting justice for her husband, but also you know, against impunity in Chile in general. And she dies right before the man who she's been working to get extradited from the United States, who at this point is 74 years old. You know, so he had that constitution passed. Had he come to, had he gone to Chile and been convicted, you know, all of that is still in progress. Potentially would have been eligible for house arrest due to his age. And I'm sure he has health complications at 74 years old. She died. She was already 90 in her 90s, I believe. Yeah. She didn't even get to see him extradited to the United States. That's how long this took. You know what I mean? That's how that's how long she was, you know, working to bring his killers to justice. 
And he was one of the first, he was one of the earliest victims of the dictatorship. And so you have these kind of people, there were hundreds of people at her funeral in Santiago. People were celebrating her life and her work, but, you know, nothing on the level of someone like Henry Kissinger, who has just sown chaos and murder and, you know, brought dictatorship to Chile, brought neoliberalism by force. You know, what's the line? Let's make the economy scream. Exactly. To, you know, force them to vote responsibly. Exactly. Because, of course, I mean, as I'm sure most people listening to this already know, the president, Allende, who was ousted by this coup in 1973, was democratically elected Marxist president. Exactly. I mean, I could do like a five-hour show just on Kissinger (laughs) alone, and it goes beyond Latin America. But we should point out that also, to a certain degree, the, the term Operation Condor comes to mind when it comes during that time period and Kissinger's era as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, I have to be honest with you, it's very frustrating to read the story of Joan Hada, especially with her passing in November, because as you mentioned, the extradition of this person wasn't until the next month in December. And it just goes to show you the long-term effects of U.S.-sponsored dictatorships during that era and any era, to be honest with you, because we've spoken about the Chilean constitution here, but it's not something that was implemented one day and then it's just there. It just sits there. No, it extends beyond the injustice inherited in it, extends beyond just that one day and just that one time period. And like I told you before, the Chilean public recognized this in 2019, which is what led to all these protests that we saw. And so it's justice denied to a very tragic degree. And another component to her legacy, especially with her passing last November, you mentioned a lot of people showed up at her funeral. It's also important to note that we mentioned the issue of disinformation in places like Chile. Another form of disinformation is the denialism of history or anti-history. And you actually mentioned that in your article as well. People sort of either rewriting or just misinforming the public of the importance of the Pinochet years and the long-term effects it's had on places like Chile. And so this leads us to present times. And it's quite, I guess, frustrating to say the least to see which direction the Boric administration is going. You mentioned that there's been a right word shift in your article with regards to the Boric administration. And so what does that mean for the upcoming elections in 2025? I mean, how do you look at it with regards to either the politics or the opinion of the general public? Is there discontent or frustration or disillusionment, especially with these last two constitutional referendums that fell short of both the left and the right with regards to their ambitions? As you were saying, in 2019, people were kind of fed up with everything that had been going on. You know, Chile's being held up in the quote-unquote West as like this success story of neoliberalism. Meanwhile, the wealth gap is just, you know, growing by the second. You know, middle class being gutted, all that kind of thing. And people, those protests, you know, in large part were protests against the neoliberal model that was imposed by the dictatorship and, you know, basically by the Chicago Boys from Washington. So as irritated as people are with, I mean, from the outside, of course, as irritated as people seem to be with the failure of this constitutional process, I think they're equally disillusioned with the current administration, especially given some of the choices that they have made recently. Um, And so obviously this is complicated, you know, like you can't, any leftist political leader is at some point going to become or going to no longer pretend to be an oppositional force against the kind of moneyed forces that they once said they were opposed to, right? Maybe to put that another way, the leftist politicians at some point either put their quote-unquote careers in danger or they play the game. And so... I think the fact that they that the current administration has been playing the game to such a degree has his voters disillusioned and also is kind of maybe contributing to the 
popularity of the right at this point. And so in January, a Chilean court moved to formalize charges against Ricardo Yanez, who was the general director. Yeah, I was just about to ask you about that one. Go ahead. Of the Carabineros, the Chile's National Police. You know, there's something like some kind of military police, national police. And he was being charged with omissive conduct related to coercion and homicide for the Carabineros' use of force against the, against this protest movement in 2019, the SIO Social. Almost 400 people sustained eye injuries. Many people lost, you know, partial sight or all of their sight. And more than 30 people were killed or died. More than 30 people died. And the court was moving to hold this organization responsible to take a step against impunity, which, as we're talking about, is a major issue in Chile and in Latin America in general. And I mean, we could extend that beyond Latin America as well. And so rather than standing with the protesters who ignited this movement that brought the president to power, the current president to power, his move was to reportedly call Yanez and tell him that he had the administration's absolute support. So to the man... Really? Yes. To the man at the head of the organization that was brutalizing these protesters who helped him win the presidency, he says, I got your back. And, you know, even earlier this week, two or three days ago, Amnesty International directly called on President Boris to remove Yanez from his post because, you know, they're part of the team that's doing the investigations into this undue violence against these protesters. And I think that was a major moment for anyone who still had any kind of hope in the current administration that it was kind of like, well, that's that, you know? Yeah, and it just marks another example of how the optimism of the Boric administration in the early days has really gone down profoundly in the days since with regards to this. Because as you mentioned, this caught the attention of Amnesty International. And this rightward turn in a place like Chile is very concerning, especially when, you know, next-door neighbor Argentina has already turned in the right direction mm -hmm. with Javier Mille. And... Who's to say what's going to happen in places like Peru and Ecuador in the coming months ahead with regards to this rightward shift? We're seeing too much of this in Latin America right now, and it's nothing short of disappointing to see where this is happening, where this is going. But at the same time, I think there should be a large degree, a very large degree of self-reflection by the left in Chile, in other parts of Latin America as well, as to why they cannot seriously challenge the economic model in places like Chile that would lead people to protest, that would galvanize people to vote for leftist parties, but then be disappointed at the end with regards to, you know, seeing more of the same as far as the economic model that continues to marginalize people like the Chilean constitution. So we have about a few minutes left, and I want to reiterate again that we're going to create a link to Nikki's NACLA article on our Twitter account so people can learn more and check out more information, not only with regards to the Constitution and the referendum itself, but there's a link within the link with regards to the extradition of this Chilean national with regards to the murder of Victor Hara, more revealing information there in and of itself. So in a few minutes that we have left, Nikki, what else do you hope people learn from these two failures in the constitutional referendum in Chile? And what do you see or what can you say with regards to the presidential elections coming up in 2025? So to start with that really quickly, the current polling is putting Evelyn Mate at the top. She's a conservative and then followed by Jose Antonio Cast. And so while it's too early to say, of course, November 2025 is still a long time away, Many things could happen before then. The main thing is that people on the right are the ones at the heads of the polls right now. And this reminded me of something that I spoke about with Susana Capriles, who is the director of the Radio La Voz El Paine. And Paine is that community where I told you where Cast's father and, an and another of his brothers, not Miguel, who was in the Chicago Boys, but a third Cast brother, were implicated in the murders of campesinos in 1973 in the early days of the dictatorship 
So she she's working in radio in that community. And I asked her for another piece, a question about what will happen if Chile elects cast and what will that mean, basically, and how can that be avoided if that's, you know, if that's what people, if people are hoping to reinforce democracy, how do you avoid a caste presidency, basically? And so she said, she put, I think, the blame where the blame is due. She said the advance of the Republicanos is the most, in the most recent vote is a shadow of the weakness of the left of the weakness of progressive proposals in respect to the construction of an autonomous, independent, and collective project formed from the base, from the real needs of the population. I mean, I think she puts it very concisely that what needs to happen is people, if this is not the future that Chileans want, which we know that they rejected this far-right constitution, they chose to return to democracy in the 90s with a vote, there needs to be some soul searching on the left. There needs to be some real organization. There needs to be some not this. They, you know, officials need to not be tiptoeing around the police or around lithium miners or around making better relations with neoliberal entities, making better relations with, you know, making sure that Israel isn't too offended, things like that. They need to be involved in a project that will address the issues in the lives of everyday Chileans who are suffering from this project that was imposed from outside of the country, who are suffering because their economy is in shambles. They have no hope to retire, as we were talking about. They have no hope to have a living wage at this point past age 60 without continuing to work. And without addressing any of those issues, it will be impossible to prevent a backslide away from democracy, I think, as we were talking about earlier. Yeah, it's the classic American cliche of, it's the economy, stupid, you know. <laughs> to a certain degree, we could give the Borge administration some credit in that they were close yes. in trying to change the Constitution. But again, there has to be a great degree of self-reflection as to why, why they can't take that next step in challenging the economic model that leaves people marginalized and leaves corporations the liberty to take money outside the country, as you just mentioned. So who's to say what's going to happen in the coming weeks and months ahead? But again, this self-reflection is not exclusive to Chile. It should include various other parts of Latin America, even the U.S. as well. So we've been speaking with Nikki Duda She's a Chicago-based writer, editor, and researcher. Her recent article in NACLA is entitled Chile Rejects Far-Right Constitution. We're going to create a link to her article on our Twitter account. But in the meantime, it's been fun. It's been a pleasure as always. Thank you for being on the show again, Nikki Duda. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And with that said, that is it for today's show. We want to remind everyone that you can follow us on latinomediacollective.com. You can also follow us on Twitter under the name at LMC underscore show. That is at LMC underscore show. And of course, live on WPFWFM.org. That's WPFWFM.org. Once again, this is Oscar Fernandez saying thank you very much, everyone, for listening to the show. That's it for today's show. Adios. Nos vemos. Ciao.
Celebrating 20 years, the new African Film Festival presented by AFI and Africa World Now Project brings the vibrancy of African filmmaking from all corners of the continent and across the diaspora to the DMV at the AFI Silver Theater and Cultural Center in downtown Silver Spring from March 15th to the 28th. The festival features 26 films from 16 countries, including three years premieres and discussions with filmmakers. Explore the diversity of new filmmaking from Africa at the 2024 New African Film Festival. Tickets and full schedule at afi.com forward slash silver. That's afi.com forward slash silver. Or call 301-495-6700. 301-495-6700. WPFW, building a better world, one broadcast at a time. This is Jim Byers, host of the Latin Flavor Classic Edition. And if you've ever heard my show, you know that vintage mambo and vintage cars go hand in hand. But you know, it takes a lot to keep WPFW on the road. We provide news, bringing you music worth listening to and providing in-depth conversations about your community and the world. One of the things we count on to keep it all going is contributions from listeners like you. One of the many ways that you can contribute is to donate a vehicle that you no longer need. It's free to you, easy to do, and could be worth hundreds of dollars in support. If you don't need it, donate it. Learn more at WPFWFM.org or call 1-866-WPFW-CAR. That's 1-866-973-9227. We take cars, boats on a trailer, motorhomes, trucks, working motorcycles, farm equipment, and even recreational vehicles. Pickup is free and your gift is tax deductible. Call 1-866-973-9227 for more information on how you can donate your vehicle today. Thank you for listening to the Just Completed program. If you'd like to offer feedback on any of our programming, please email us at info at WPFW.org. For WPFW in Washington and WBAI New York, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns with some brief news headlines. Turkey joined Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Jordan today in condemning Israeli forces for firing on Palestinians attempting to retrieve food from an aid convoy in an attack that killed more than 100 people yesterday and wounded at least 700 others. The Turkish foreign ministry called the massacre, quote, yet another crime against humanity. In a statement without providing evidence, the Israeli military blamed the deaths on, quote, pushing, trampling, and being run over by the trucks. The Associated Press cited the head of Gaza City's Al-Ada Hospital, who said that over 80% of the patients it treated from the incident had been struck by gunfire. Dr. Mohammed Salha said 142 of the 176 wounded people at the hospital had suffered gunshot wounds. The other 34 showed injuries from a stampede. President Biden was asked by reporters yesterday if the massacre would complicate ongoing ceasefire negotiations, and he replied, quote, I know it will. The massacre brings the death toll in Gaza to more than 30,000. The European Union today agreed to pay 50 million euros to UNRWA, the UN agency providing aid in Gaza, after the agency agreed to an audit by EU officials. Funding to UNRWA was cut by the U.S. and European allies after the agency acknowledged the possibility that 12 of its 13,000 staff in Gaza participated in the October 7th Hamas attack in southern Israel. UNRWA fired the employees. The EU is the third largest donor to UNRWA, behind the U.S. and Germany. The EU agreement to disperse funds comes as UNRWA is facing financial collapse and as the humanitarian situation in Gaza becomes even more dire. 
voters in Iran head to the polls today for parliamentary elections, the first since mass protests in 2022 over hijab laws and the death of a young woman, Masa Amini. Turnout for today's election was low amid calls for a boycott and the widespread disqualification of reformist candidates. Of the roughly 15,000 candidates vying for seats in the 290-seat parliament, only about 116 candidates are considered moderate or reformist, according to the Associated Press. A state-owned pollster predicted turnout of about 39% nationwide and only about 24% in the capital Tehran, which would be the lowest turnout in the history of the country. In domestic news, a federal judge in Texas yesterday blocked a new state law that granted sweeping powers to local and state police to arrest people suspected of illegally entering the U.S. The ruling marks a victory for the Biden White House, which has argued that Texas Governor Greg Abbott is encroaching on federal jurisdiction over immigration enforcement. Texas officials are likely to appeal the preliminary injunction. In his ruling, Judge David Ezra said the Texas law would conflict with federal law, conflict with foreign relations, and with U.S. treaty obligations. The Texas law was due to take effect on March 5th. And senators voted 77 to 13 last night to approve a short-term funding bill passed earlier in the House, sending the measure to President Biden for his signature. The legislative moves prevent a government shutdown that was due to begin tonight at midnight. The bill extends funding for two groups of federal agencies through March 8th and March 22nd, respectively. The short-term funding extension is the fourth such measure in recent months, as lawmakers struggle to negotiate longer-term spending agreements. But congressional leaders expressed optimism that this would be the last short-term extension of the current fiscal year. House Speaker Mike Johnson said negotiators had completed six annual spending bills and were close to, quote, final agreement on the others. Weather in Washington, D.C. right now is 50 degrees and mostly cloudy. In New York City, 45 degrees with fair skies. For WPFW in Washington and WBAI New York, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. Thanks for listening. 